0: Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. Hello, it's me. Hi, it's Candace King. I'm very honored and excited and thrilled and all the things to be sitting down with today's guest. She is a journalist. I read an article of hers in the New York Times a couple weeks back. She had interviewed three 13 year old girls about what it's like to be 13 in America these days with social media and just things that that I didn't experience. I am a millennial. I know that we make fun of that word a lot, kind of, and by we, I mean the youth. The youth, I know that there's a lot of things on, on the tickety-talk in the, in the Instagram about, like, what millennials say, and then I read them, and then I watch them to be like, oh, this isn't going to be true, and then it is, like, spot on. Like, yeah, I do walk around the grocery store and love the soundtrack, okay? They're, they're playing some bops. They're playing some bops in the bread aisle, all right. So sue me. But I read this article, and it's just you know I've had the I know that I've talked about my my family, and and that I have had the great honor and opportunity to be a part of watching my my stepdaughters, you know, as they grew up out their, their teenage years, and they're now eighteen and twenty one. But even watching them, I would I would be like reminded and revisit, you know, my own experiences as a teenager and how vastly different. It felt watching them go through their experiences. And, and even though the experiences themselves could be the exact same, you know, where it's like you're in middle school or it's like friend drama or like a, you know, romantic drama, like things that are kind of that you're going to see in, in in any generation you're going to experience, you know, but it felt different because of social media. It just felt wildly different trying to picture their experiences. So I read this article by journalist Jessica Bennett, and it really left an impact on me. Continued to read many of her articles and listen to her new podcast. And I was like, I got to sit down with Jessica. We we got some stuff to talk about. She has had an award-winning journalism career, focusing a gender lens on social issues and culture from the persistence of workplace inequality to the ripple effects of Me Too Jessica was the first ever gender editor of the New York Times and is the author of two best-selling books, Feminist Fight Club, A Survival Manual for a Sexist Workplace, and This Is 18, Girls' Lives Through Girls' Eyes. Jessica is also an adjunct professor of journalism at New York University, where she teaches a course called Reporting the Zeitgeist. She's profiled figures as varied as Eugene Carroll and Pamela Anderson and written features on call-out culture, the changing nature of sexual consent on college campuses, and chronicled the battle for a more inclusive Miss America. Jessica is also a co-host of a new podcast called In Retrospect, which looks back at cultural moments from the past and see if they look different in retrospect, whether it's a scandalous tabloid story seared into our teenage brains or political punchlines that just feels wrong now in retrospect looks back at cultural moments from the past and sees if they look different in retrospect to try to understand what they taught us about the world and a woman's place in it you can follow jessica at jessica bennett on instagram as well as her podcast at in retro pod without further ado here is my interview with journalist jessica bennett congratulations by the way on your new podcast in retrospect. It's, it's fantastic. And it's funny, even just like talking for, you know, about the article that you wrote about the, you know, you interviewed three different 13 year old girls over the course of a year to kind of feel like what it's like to be a 13, you know, a 13 year old girl right now. And you said, yeah, I just remember that time so vividly. And I have been like, trying to remember so many things of my youth because I feel like now in my 30s it's like I'm trying to make sense of my behavioral patterns or the way that I think and the way that I do things and and not because I'm discovering them about myself for the first time, but because I'm truly seeing the pattern and the repetition of them and knowing that so much of that comes from the things that we've seen or experienced in our youth. It's just an interesting time to be so reflective. Were you inspired to write that article yourself? Did someone kind of bring this idea to you? Because 13 is just such a very particular age in a woman's life.
3: Yeah. I mean, I can remember my 13-year-old year year so vividly in like a way that is weird. I'm now in my 40s, but I think I most identify with that teenage self in some way. It's like where so much of my personality and who I was becoming and my identity was formed. Um, And I think a lot of my independence too. But the reason I started out Wanting to document these girls at that age was in part because I was thinking about how different it is for 13-year-olds today, because that's the age at which they're allowed to join social media. And so all of the things that I went through, and probably you went through too, at least they could shut off at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Or if you were having a drama with a friend, you would go home, or maybe you would work it out. But You'd be like, in your, if you were me, you'd be isolated in your room with the door shut playing like really loud Nirvana, but you wouldn't be checking social media to see what people are saying about you all the time. And I happen to know also that girls' self-confidence and self-esteem, and I think this was really true of me as well, tends to dip right around that age. Like As soon as girls hit the middle school years, their self-esteem tends to plummet three times the rate of boys'. And so girls today are in this really precarious time where at the same moment that they're starting to struggle, starting to revert inward, you know, raising their hands less in class, not speaking up as much, they're able to join their social media sites. And so I was really interested in what the intersection of those things looked like.
0: It's interesting. I read or I was listening to an interview with Aubrey Plaza a while back. And she was talking about how she'd gone to an all-girls school. And it wasn't until later on that she was in, you know, mixed-gendered company in a classroom setting where she was just so confused because she kept raising her hand. And she was like, I didn't know. Like, other people weren't raising their hand, Like, and other girls so yeah. weren't raising their hands. And you don't think about those things affecting you in the long run. But I've even had to really realize that in my adulthood. And even though, like, I have been... I consider myself to be a very independent person. I I lived alone a lot, even throughout my 20s and early 20s, and I you know, felt very capable. I was someone I was like, well, I, I'm like an independent feminist. I go to the movies by myself. Like I can sit and read a book at a table all by myself at a restaurant because I am secure with who I am. And yet parallel to that, I find myself so often in business settings or like having a, you know, current events conversation and that I just want to be like quiet. And, I, and I'm like, well, I don't know better. They probably know the answer more than I do. And generally I direct that towards other men in the room and it's taken me a really long time to kind of figure out like why I minimize my voice and just decide that like they must know better and I think back like you know even in regards to your podcast looking at things that were so prevalent in pop culture around times when you know that I was in my young adulthood and so much of that was around like this bizarre kind of like like intersection of like you know, girl power, spice girls, feminism, yes, 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 but then also, here's how you get a man, here's how you keep a man, and like you have to look the part, play the part, but but also, like pretend that you're doing everything yourself. and it's just been very confusing ever since. Like have you found that going back and trying to figure out pop culture things that really stood out to you that made you kind of look back at your adolescence in a different way?
3: Like you were saying, you start to notice that you have these patterns and these behaviors in your adult life. And you're like, where did I learn those messages? Where did that come from? And so part of the idea with this podcast was there's so much stuff that we internalized growing up as teenagers in, the for me, the late 80s and 90s. What we consumed on television, the movies we were watching, like the games we played at school, the language, the way people talked about sex and consent, but like consent wasn't a word back then, and sexuality and bodies and all of these things. And I think we really internalized them to a large degree. Like, I feel like a lot of my millennial friends now that there's this whole conversation happening around Ozempic and thinness and weight have been discussing how as someone raised in that era, it was like impossible to come out of that without hating your body, no matter what you looked like. Mm-hmm. Like we just couldn't do body positivity because we grew up on magazines that were telling us the opposite and, and not just magazines, but all sorts of different kinds of media. So part of what we wanted to do in this podcast, I co-host it with a good friend of mine, Susie Banakaram, She's a journalist as well. But was to look back at these moments, whether they're pop culture moments or political moments, or even like the smell of Axe body spray, which I don't know if that emanated through the halls of your high school, but it certainly (laughs) emanated through mine. Uh To try to get at what those things taught us, and sometimes they're really subtle, and sometimes they're insidious, and they're not necessarily overt. And it's not that I want to look back on these things and say like, "Oh my God, those were also." problematic. Like, can you believe that we consumed this stuff? It's more like, what did we learn from them and how has that played out in our adult lives? Were you, what
0: was the word feminism to you in young adulthood? Because obviously like gender has been a very big part of your career also in the last decade as far as, you know, that you were, but but what did the word feminism, let's start there. What did feminism mean to you?
3: Yeah. I mean, that was not a word that I grew up using. I grew up in Seattle. I have really progressive parents. I have younger brothers. And it was sort of just assumed in my upbringing that like, of course, I could accomplish whatever my brothers could and more. And it was almost like so assumed that we didn't need to use that word or talk about it. And so I've written about this, but it really wasn't until I got my first real job and I had moved to New York and I was becoming a journalist in a corporate environment that I sort of found myself looking around being like, wait, all these guys are getting ahead more quickly than I am. And how come when they speak, people listen? <laughs> and when I speak, people don't. Or why is it the, the idea I just pitched for a story was sort of shot down and now I see that it has appeared in the magazine under a guy's byline? So it was all of these subtle things where I was like, okay, but wait, like, haven't we achieved equality? Like, what, it, what could this be? This must be me. Like, the problem must be me. Mm-hmm. And so... It was really, for me, a journey in my early 20s of being like, okay, this is systemic. (laughs) This is a political problem. I mean, like the age-old saying, it's political, not personal, or the personal is political. It was a journey of learning that it wasn't just me. These were systemic things. There was still systemic inequity in the very place that I was working, even in the—this was the 2010s, and— You know, it may not have been as overt as it once was. It may not have been anything that you could even document in any real way, but it was there. And that was when I re-embraced the word feminism.
0: Well, that's also, I mean, the other trope is like, oh, well, I'm sure you were off on your own because all girls are competitive and you wouldn't have anyone else to talk to in the workplace who would like have your back Mm because it's all just cat fights everywhere. But were you having open conversations with other women in the workplace about what you were experiencing? Did you, did it, did that also help shift the like, oh, this isn't a me problem. This is maybe more of a systemic issue within the corporate workplace as a whole.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know that I could have come to that on my own, but I had a pretty unique experience in that my first real job out of college was at Newsweek Magazine. And this was a place that I had grown up reading the magazine, you know, back then it was one of the two big magazines, Newsweek and Time, that were still in print. Like it was kind of the dream job. And so when I got there and wasn't excelling as fast as I thought maybe I should have, it was really confusing. And it was only talking through other, talking to other young women about their frustrations as well, that I started to realize and that we started to realize collectively, like, oh, okay, this is a this is a bigger thing. And then what ended up happening was, so a couple of female colleagues and I, they were both young, they were around my same age, we were out of college a couple of years, we were pretty early on in our careers, kind of struggling, trying to to rise up. We learned and discovered that Newsweek, where we worked, was actually the place where in the year 1970, 46 women had sued the magazine for gender discrimination in what was the first lawsuit of its kind. And that lawsuit was groundbreaking and huge, and it paved the way for women journalists. So literally, the reason we were there and able to be journalists at all, even if we felt like we weren't getting ahead, was because of these women who had come 40 years before us. And yet nobody had told us that story. And so this is like before you could google this which you can now because there's been more recent writing about it so I, I i will never forget being with these two women who are my friends and like racing back to one of our computers and searching like newsweek women lawsuit like what happened to this and finding absolutely nothing and then us having to go down to the new york public library and look through the microfiche and find the old stories about this actual lawsuit and so that, for me, was a real turning point in understanding that we were part of a larger system. And in our case, we were part of this really historic place where, in some ways, the history had been lost to time. Was that part of an inciting
0: incident that would become Feminist Fight Club later on for you? or? Yes.
3: So there's a lot of these kind of <laughs> circles or second degrees of separation throughout the course of my career. But Yeah, what happened was, you know, like journalists do, we started reporting that story, and we were determined to write about what happened with these women 40 years prior who had sued the magazine for gender discrimination in 2012, I think it was, when we were first discovering this. And through that process, we tracked down the original women from that lawsuit— One of whom had a daughter who was in this women's group that she introduced me to. And that was the feminist fight club that I would then join and would become the subject of my book. And that it was essentially a group of women who were in different industries in media and production and television and comedy who were meeting monthly to talk about their careers and helping one another. And so it was through this woman who had sued Newsweek who would go on to become the first woman senior editor at Newsweek, who introduced me to her daughter, who introduced me to the Fight Club, which then became (laughs) the subject of my book. And then ultimately that same editor would go on to write a book about that Newsweek lawsuit called The Good Girls Revolt. And if that sounds familiar, maybe Mm. to Hollywood, to you as a Hollywood person or people who consume television, that's because it got made into a television series on Amazon that was very good, but then got canceled, sadly. Sadly,
4: it was very good. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European Linen. Premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more—and is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns. One size fits all seemed like a
1: good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt
0: It's interesting because I mean this is from even just looking at the decade of like 2010 to 2020 and and also just reading about your career and looking at your career and that kind of that's where it started and where it's like you're also going to get into the Me Too movement and then also but then the 2016 president president election and the really big you know gender I don't even have the words for it because it just makes me like my stomach flip all over again. <laughs> it brings me back to being in New York on that very what was a sad day for me holding my on daughter. Mm-hmm. Yes. To go through all of these experiences where finally things are coming out and, and that there's hope, but then also, you know, the Trump presidential years and the, you know, his comments on women specifically and then working at the, you know, as Someone who specifically was writing for gender at the New York Times. I'm sorry. I have my notes on my phone because I've been moving and I can't find my printer still. (laughs) But That's all accurate. I cannot believe, like, I can't imagine wrapping your head around so many things that feel like you're moving forward while also so many archaic conversations that feels like, are we still talking like this about women? Is there, what, did you have days like that where you're like, how am I having both of these conversations at the same time in the same day? Like, what what were your experiences being a yeah. journalist at that point?
3: Well, so what ended up happening, so after, you know, I made this discovery at Newsweek and I would go on to write this book and I'd been writing for the New York Times for a number of years, but as a freelancer. And ultimately, I got this job as the first ever gender editor. And the job began right after the Women's March, right after the election. You know, obviously, so many people, including myself, really thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win and were absolutely stunned and heartbroken when she did not And... Then when I took this job, it was a couple of months before my colleagues, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey would write this story that would spark the Me Too movement about Harvey Weinstein. And so suddenly I'm in this new role. You know, there's never been a job like this before. We're still kind of figuring out like what exactly it is. And there's a lot of internal, you know, complexity and politics around how you function in this giant news organization that's never had a role like this before. And then Me Too erupted. The hashtag was retweeted by Alyssa Milano. You probably remember this story. Mm -hmm. It was originally created by Tarana Burke. Mm -hmm. Story after story after story started pouring out about executives in Hollywood and then about factory workers. And then almost every single industry, it was like you could go down the, the boxes just checking them off. Men were being fired and exposed for horrible, horrible behavior. So it was a wild time to be in a newsroom trying to manage coverage, but also trying to keep up with it. And there wasn't really a precedent for how you reported a lot of this stuff. I think, in many ways, that original story about Harvey Weinstein by Megan and Jody created the precedent for how you report these types of stories. But You know, things like corroborations and following the paper trail and making sure you had documentation for everything so that people couldn't dismiss what you were finding as he said, she said, or as, you know, some sort of polemic or an opinion piece. And so there were moments when our inbox was just flooded with women sharing their own stories of abuse and assault. And it was absolutely more than you could possibly respond to, more than one person could reply to. And I remember at one point having to create some sort of auto reply that would go to people who were emailing this general inbox that could try to account for, please know that we're reading your stories, but we just can't reply to everyone. And thinking like, this is the most crass thing I've ever had to write. Like, how do you minimize someone's story by giving an auto message. Yeah. But there were moments like that where, you know, you knew that something really important was happening and you knew that your colleagues were, you know, changing the world in in many ways by reporting on this. And yet there were so many stories that you couldn't possibly give them all attention.
0: I just remember that time so vividly, like getting together with you know, female friends of mine and sitting around, and just, and wh- while the subject matter was so heavy, everyone came and everyone just began sharing at a level of vulnerability which, you know, you know, uh, typically women are emotional creatures. I, I'm a very emotional person and female. I surround myself with generally emotional women as well, who, and emotional in the sense that they're emotionally vulnerable. Like we share a lot of things with each other. So I'd had a lot of deep personal conversations with my friends, but, but these in particular just felt like there was a weight lifted off that, like everyone's, like heart and soul and shoulders that they'd just been carrying for so long and being able to, you know, which goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, re-examine moments within their lives and, and really be able to not follow a narrative that's been taught to them by how like society wants you to think that it was, you know, like, oh, well, then I probably shouldn't have been wearing that skirt if I didn't want someone to walk up behind me at a bar and put their hand underneath my skirt and grab me. Like, that's just what guys do at bars. Like, I remember telling myself that. I remember thinking like, that's ah, just like, I, that's just what people, that's just what happens. And in, in that time period being like, why, why, why did I just think that that was something that happens? So I can't imagine reading and wanting to honor all the stories that you were getting and report that, you know, and, and your job as a journalist at that time and, and also trying to like process it yourself.
4: Yeah,
3: well, I mean, that was part of what was so interesting is that all of the women covering this had experienced it in one form or another, you know. So, yeah, in, in the day you're at your job and you're reporting on the subject and then you get home and you're like talking to your girlfriends or your partner or whoever it might be about like, yeah, this made me think of this thing that happened. And did X thing ever happen to you? And I wonder if my mom has a story like this. And, oh, actually, my grandmother once told me something about this. It just, like, the floodgates opened. And I think it was really important because it took the secrecy out of it. And people were talking openly. But once they were talking openly, you saw just how widespread it was.
0: At what point, I I think, like, I feel like also there is this really... Uh, oh, it's it's been it's been interesting because it felt like this like renaissance. It felt like this very like powerful thing. And then now I'm it's also like we can get into that whole discussion, which I know you guys kind of do on your podcast a little bit as well. But like there's this you obviously ended up sitting down with Monica Lewinsky and I and this was within a couple of years of as me too was beginning and and really in the thick of it, and you know, your interview with her really fine, like gave a narrative allowed her to take her narrative back of like what she experienced and I think that allowed the world to re-examine the way that it participated in this very unbalanced power dynamic and see it now through a much clearer perspective. Did you know when you were sitting down with Monica what that interview was going to be like? Did she approach you? Did you approach her? How did that come about?
3: Yeah, I, I approached her. This was actually a few years before me too, and I've profiled. I'm so sorry. No, it's not. It's not you. I've profiled her twice. Okay. So the first time was before, and then the second time was after, which was kind of an interesting. I've never done that before, so it was really interesting to see how she had grown. But the first time, I I was writing a column for Time Magazine, and I wrote this column about how we owe Monica Lewinsky an apology, like a collective apology, because of the way she was treated in the '90s, and I really wanted to speak with her, and I had heard that she was getting ready to potentially do a TED talk about cyberbullying. And then at a certain point, she wrote an essay for Vanity Fair about her experience. And I reached out to her. I, a friend of mine had her email from something way in the past, and I reached out to her and I wrote this very long email making the case for why I thought it was so important that you know even though she hadn't spoken publicly and i think it was a decade at that point that i would love to document her process of getting ready to give this big talk and and tell her story through the lens of now because i had grown up on that story like mm-hmm. i remember being in high school and getting the copy of Newsweek magazine about the Star Report and like all of the gory details about Bill Clinton and the cigar and like all of it. And us sitting around our lockers being like, oh my God, this is so scandalous. And also like, who is this woman? And she showed her thong to the president. Like, what is that about? And I think the underlying narrative there was like, who is this slut? Mm -hmm. And so then years later to start looking back at the coverage, that I consumed at the time as a teenager and being like, oh my God, this is awful. Like how you can't talk about women like this anymore. And she was basically a child. She had no power in the situation. He's the president of the United States. Like the power dynamic is so slanted and the when, and then the way she was absolutely scorned in the press, you know, they called her like a little tart. There were all of these polls that different news outlets put out that were basically like do you think Monica Lewinsky is a slut? Yes or no? Like things that just would never happen today. And she really, really suffered as a result of that. So I didn't know if she would be open to it. I didn't know how long it would take. It ended up being a long time. And and it wasn't just one sit down. It was over the course of many months getting to know her, trying to get her to trust me. You know, she had every reason not to trust a journalist. And so it was a challenging it was a challenging assignment and story but i think ultimately what it did was it was able to look at this woman's life through the lens of the current time and for the people reading it then to think like wow it really it wasn't that long ago but the way that we talked about her and the way that she was portrayed was really crazy yeah and then it was really nice to be able to come back and sit down with her again i think it was 7 years later to be like okay, so now what? Like, now you've built this whole new career around cyberbullying and kindness and you're writing regularly for Vanity Fair and you did your TED Talk was wildly successful and now you're a producer on this show that is looking back at your life. And what is that like?
0: And that, yeah, that's what, I, I, I had read that one recently. And just to see that, because we're also seeing that so wonderfully. Like, I loved... Pamela Anderson like taking kind of her narrative like taking like her story back who I know that you also sat down with and and even you know just it's uh and then I think that there's other like versions of that that we're starting to see where we look back and and see the way that not only that Britney Spears was like portrayed in the press then and then also how she's still continued to be portrayed in the press now and we don't all just want to like we all just want to decide that we know what is going on in her life and, like, have all the answers, which we don't. But it's just, and that's where it's this interesting kind of new path, I think, for the ability for people wanting to, like, kind of re-narrate someone's life or allow them to re-narrate themselves. But we're also in this wild time where like everyone's got an opinion, everyone's on social media and everyone's like cutting things together and making their own narratives of other people's narratives. How have you seen that going? Like in, when you start to see people, like, like Britney Spears being a perfect example, like paralleling that to like even a Pamela Anderson. You know, it's like, it's on one hand, it's been so like, Wonderful that finally people like, you know, are allowing others to take accountability for putting these like women at very young ages, like these were young women in these awful positions of like talking about their bodies and like their sexuality in in such a predatory way and tearing them apart for it. And then in the now the juxtaposition of like, trying to control, like put them on a different kind of pedestal, I guess, just...
3: Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's weird and it's complicated. And as much as I'm like, oh, it's so great that we're revisiting so many of these women's stories, I can't help but also be slightly cynical about it in some ways. Like, you know, so Pamela Anderson, for instance, She now has put out a memoir that she wrote entirely herself. She was a producer on a documentary about her life that her son was largely in charge of. So she had a lot of control there, but this was all coming after that Hulu series, Pam and Tommy, which I watched and was like good and funny and interesting and was based on her life, but did not involve her. And she was staunchly opposed to it existing. And in her mind, it was like, look, that sex tape was the most humiliating thing of my life. And now these outside people are going to take it and exploit it yet again. But like in the name of... empowerment in some way and they're going to make money off it and I'm not making money off of it and shouldn't I be involved in this project if it's going to exist so I do think it's sort of like and I think I I'm part of this too it's like there is a whole cottage industry now almost around looking back and revisiting things that look differently in the present day and so how do you do that responsibly without just either you know trashing Everyone who might have enjoyed a thing in the past and being like, oh, well, you're problematic and dismissing them or without retelling the story in a way that like you don't actually know about. Like, we don't actually know what Bernice Fierce is going through. She has a memoir that's going to come out soon. Hopefully we will find out there. But. Everyone, as you said on the internet, seems to think that they have an opinion and know what's best and that it's worthy of being heard. And so there's just a lot more noise out there and a lot more kind of smug, you know, categorizing of people. I think. Yeah.
0: What is your opinion <laughs> on cancel culture as it is right now? I think it's had like an evolution as well that I think as social media is evolving, I think also as like, People who start—I mean, the the generation below uh the you know, two generations below us. I don't. Even, I mean, we grew up with the internet, but a very slow dial plug-in internet. It is not what it is today. Whereas, like, there will one day be a president that had like a full Instagram of you know th- documenting every single moment. There will one day be people in government who their probably their sonogram photo is out on the internet because. That is how, like, our society has, like, m- kind of moved along culturally and pop culture of, like, share, 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 document, document, document. You know, what has your, as as a reporter and a journalist, like, what is your take? And even if there's a different word for cancel culture, but basically, you know, making w- you, making space for the fact that people are living their lives out online at this point.
3: I mean... Look, so X, formerly known as Twitter, (laughs) is a hellhole and is maybe dying and going away. And I think that's actually going to help a lot if you're a person who doesn't believe that people should just be entirely written off for like a 140-character tweet. I guess my feeling is like, I believe in being careful with your words, but I also believe in grace and mistakes and learning from your mistakes. And I don't think that a lot of the absolutist culture that we've been living in over the past few years has has allowed for that. I did a story a couple of years ago about a woman. She's a professor at Smith College, and she teaches a class called Calling In, Not Calling Out. And it's all devoted to how students of social justice and of movements can have like healthy face-to-face conversations that may be difficult, but don't involve just, like, dragging the person online. And she really believes in in this idea of, like, allowing for grace and that just because something is a difficult conversation to have doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It doesn't mean that someone is committing verbal violence against you. Like, there's a lot of this inflation of rhetoric and inflation of language when it comes to talking about sensitive subjects. And I guess my feeling is just like, sure, there are people that are saying terrible things out there, but there are also a lot of people that might mess it up one time or two and want to get it right and can learn from it and move on. So like, it's it's complicated. It's like accountability is a good thing ultimately. And maybe we're living in an age that has none of it if you look to who our president recently was. And so maybe there's a feeling that when you can't control some of the larger issues people feel power by being able to to draw people down
0: online what's your relationship been with journalism with for you your personal relationship being a writer being a journalist has that evolved and changed over the last decade because everything is online, everything's immediate in like the, you know, you need the headline, you need the clickbait, you need that. Like I often wonder like what that must be like knowing that you need to be Mm -hmm. correct and efficient and do all your homework and research. But then also it,
3: well, I, I guess one thing that's different is that if you screw something up, you'll be, notified immediately. Yes. yes. <laughs> By people on the internet, you know, like the fact checking process happens much more quickly. There's a guy on Twitter who is called, I think it's called NYT typos. And hey, all he does is point out typos and grammatical errors in the New York Times all day long. And so like within minute, I mean, it's in- really incredible. Like he actually should be hired as a copy editor because he's so fast, but within moments of any story coming out, he has schooled you on everything you got wrong about it. So, you're very much aware of what you might have screwed up. But, you know, I I began my career at this weird time where, like, All the mainstream institutions knew that they had to get online or they were going to die. And they were looking to people like us, these millennials, to, like, help explain it to them. While at the same time sort of being like, well, nobody cares about, like, newsweek.com. So, like, okay, little girl who just graduated college, you go work on the website. And we serious people will be working on the print magazine. But it ended up being great for me because I learned everything about (laughs) the web. And so... For me, it's like I've always been thinking about how I frame stories and what the most effective medium for my stories is and that it may not always be the written word. And I think that actually now working in media, places have caught up. So it's actually nice in a sense. But yeah, certainly it's different. I mean, everything moves so quickly. And you're having to think about delivering your story in like six formats, not just one.
0: Man, oh yeah, because there's the audio element as well, and it's like everything, everything. Hold <laughs> <Everything.
3: laughs>
2: up.
0: Well, at least what I've been very encouraged by are so many articles and write-ups coming out lately that it has been, speaking of feminism, just like a kick-ass summer for the ladies, like that we have just been just crushing it when it comes to the U.S. economy and all things to, you know, Queen Beyoncé, Taylor <laughs> Swift, and Greta Gerwig. It is ha- like, has that been enjoyable to see on your end as someone who's written so much about women and gender and feminism?
3: Yeah. I mean, look, like I i think that I've gotten slightly cynical of when these things happen and everyone's like, rah, rah, the women are taking over in the midst of like Actual constitutional rights being taken away. Yes, yes. As someone who lives in Tennessee, yes, I feel that deeply. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, on the one hand, like, yeah, did I go see Barbie? Was it so fun? And did I love it? Yes, for sure. And I think in a lot of ways, it managed to be really subversive while doing the pop thing. But by the same token, I'm always wary of, like, well, if people seem to like people are putting money toward. These artists, which is incredible, but like what happens when we actually need to be fighting for reproductive rights? And so I don't I don't know how you blend these two things. This is like a juxtaposition and tension that's existed for a lot of feminism. But maybe I'm just like a cynical New Yorker feminist lady who can't be happy about anything.
0: (laughs) I thought it was funny. I know that Olivia Wilde got like a lot of heat for it, which I'm kind of just like, it's a joke. Like, it's not a joke. But I mean, it is a joke. It's absolutely a joke. Where like someone had like tweeted or exed. I don't know what it's called anymore. that like, I hope like I wouldn't it be great if Taylor Swift fell in love with a climate scientist or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it gave me a giggle. It gave me a giggle. Like we're yeah, allowed to yes. giggle a little bit, guys. Yes. We are allowed to giggle. Because that, that, that is, is part of it.
3: Yes. And I think you have, I mean, like, really, you do have to have some levity. Like, things feel so heavy so often now. And if you, sometimes if you don't laugh, you will cry. So, might as well take the small wins.
0: I couldn't agree more. What, like, going back to your podcast, I'm very excited. I know, like, even just dipping into, like, the Oprah episode, which I remember very vividly as well. And, like, I remember the diet culture of the, of the uh, 90s and the early yachts and, and everything just like fat-free, Jenny Craig, all, all the things. And you guys specifically go back and revisit Oprah's infamous episode, which was also her most watched episode of all time, with, with where she like pulls a wagon of like the amount of body weight that she lost. And in, in, it was represented by a wagon full of fat, like actual animal fat. <laughs> And it's just like, like even just revisiting some of the topics that, of the episodes that have come out so far, it just goes, it like kind of snaps my brain and going like, oh yeah, that's crazy that's insane that is I cannot believe that that happened and like how often like she was asked about her weight when she was like she's such an accomplished woman and so uh, what other like have there been other things that maybe didn't make the cut because there's only so many episodes you can do right now like or what other things have you looked back and revisited Um, I saw in like a teaser that you might be revisiting the Dawson's Creek episode where Pacey sleeps with this teacher I very much remember
3: that (laughs) Okay. Yes. You remember uh, Tamara, Miss Jacobs. Yeah. That's an upcoming one. I mean, there's, it's like our list is so long and we really have to pick and choose because there's so many of these. And once you start going down the rabbit hole, there's more and more, but yeah. So I watched Dawson's Creek in high school. It was like everyone's favorite show. One of my best friends would host watch parties at her house. And at one point, the New York Times, where I now work, obviously came to report a story about these like kids in Seattle who were gathering to watch this salacious show and like the feminist mom was allowing them to watch it. So it was hilarious to look back on that. But yeah, there was this hot and heavy relationship between Pacey and Miss Jacobs, his 38-year-old English teacher. Pacey, I'll remind you, was 15 years old. And he loses his virginity to her. And there's this like horrible cringe line where he he's getting mad at one point and he's saying well I'm the best sex you'll never have (laughs) and you're just like oh my god Pacey like you're 15 like first of all that's not true under any circumstance (laughs) and second like this is just so disturbing on so many levels however I don't know how you about this or remember it, but I remember thinking this was, like, the hottest relationship ever. Oh, same. And I was
0: rooting for them. I was, was, like, madly in love with him. I was just, like, this is a real love story. Like, everyone needs to just, like, let them be together. And also, I'm like, he's a man, you know? Like, I'm watching it, and I'm a little bit younger. I'm like, he's basically a grown-up,
3: like. (laughs) Well, also, funny thing is that, Remember how the actors in that show were so much older than the age they were playing? So they were, he was a man. He was like in his 20s, as was Dawson. As was I I when I was playing a teenager. Yes. Okay, yeah, weird (laughs) cognitive dissonance. (laughs) But absolutely, I totally remember that as well. We all thought Pacey was so hot. We all wanted this relationship to work. It like made him more hot that he was now experienced with this older woman. And nobody was really talking about it as a rape or an assault or whatever you would call that now if it were to happen today. And so we were revisiting this and then remembering that at the time this was playing out in my hometown in Seattle was also where the tabloid story of Mary Kay Letourneau was, was, was happening. if that okay. was the and, same yes, time. I was going to yes. say, I don't know if you remember oh, that case, but yes. she was a real teacher outside of Seattle who was impregnated by her 12-year-old student. And it was like, you know, tabloid gold. It was like, who is this woman? And yet, strangely, a lot of the headlines were about like this tryst and like, was it love, but not about the fact that You know, this is a statutory rape according to the law. Because also,
0: it's if if the roles were reversed and it had been a young woman with an older man, it's very... Like, that's where it starts to... It's like somehow... Pop culture would excuse it. It's like, oh, well, he wants it. He's a man. So like he he's gonna enjoy it. Like he's so lucky. Yeah, He's so lucky. He's so mm-hmm. lucky and so desired as this like young. It, where like that also became glorified in like with the MILF culture, you know, from American Pie. Like that just became like a a pop culture thing in itself, which like ugh, I can't believe. It. So I was wondering if that was around the same time. But then you reverse yeah, the it. The exact same time. Yes. And then I like like, one of the things I was thinking of, like, I was like, what was scarring to me as a teen? Like, what do I look back on being like, that was so inappropriate that I thought was, like, cool or, like, totally acceptable. And my version of that 100% was, like, like a young woman's eligibility for legal sex when they turned 18. Because mm-hmm. this was also a thing. Like, that's the thing. If it had been, like, a young girl and an older teacher completely inappropriate pervert. But then the second that, had she been 18, it's like, oh, well, she's eligible now. Right. She's, like, that I feel like right. became the narrative. Like, whatever, remember, everyone was obsessed when with the Olsen twins were going to turn 18. Yes,
3: yes. yes. And weren't there even, there were, like, countdowns. Yes, which is so For creepy. One, yes. That's so creepy. So, so creepy. Yeah, it's, uh, somebody was mentioning this recently. That's another one we should look at. But yeah, there were so many of these. And even with, some of the pop stars we've talked about, but like Britney Spears, I remember her first cover story in Rolling Stone. I think this was right after Baby One More Time came out. She, you would remember it. She's posing on the cover. With the Teletubby. And the Teletubby. Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> and so inside that spread, she's in her childhood bedroom like posed with all of these little dolls. And it's just like this weird infantilizing little girl, Lolita, but like sexy woman thing that I think still very much exists.
0: Yeah. And and then within later, I was like looking up things around that, that time. Like, just like, what are things that maybe we look back at differently? And interestingly enough, Rolling Stone also put out an interview with Lindsay Lowen a week after she turned 18. And the, where was it? What did it say? It was so messed up. The actual, oh, it the actual cover said hot, ready, and legal. Exclamation point.
3: Exclamation point. <laughs> right. There's so many examples like that. And this, I mean, this was like the tabloid paparazzi era, you know, too. So, like, this was when... You know, like TMZ was getting a start mm-hmm. and Perez Hilton mm-hmm. and all of, like, remember the upskirt shot, which yes. was just like paparazzi shooting up women's skirts. And that was deemed like a photo that you really wanted to get. And everyone was just okay with it. And it would be published on all these blogs. So it was like what was selling at that point in terms of the media culture was totally different as well. And it wasn't the age now where, like, okay, if someone were to take a terrible paparazzi photo of Britney Spears now, It may still happen, but she'd then go on Instagram and say something about it. Like, she has a direct relationship with her audience.
0: But I just remember all of that stuff filtering into my brain thinking. Like, it's been taken—it's taken me a while to kind of deprogram myself from that and be like— because I remember at that time being like, oh, if I was living in L.A., I was working in the industry, and I remember thinking if older men approached me and asked me how old I was— oh my God, they must like me. When <laughs> It's like, no, no, no. That is creepy. I know one of my favorite things to tell like any young like woman or a teenager, if they talk like as they're getting out into the world, I'm like, if any guy ever tells you that you act really mature for your age, run.
3: Not a compliment. Run. That is yeah. not a compliment. Yeah. That is not a compliment at yeah. all. It is. But that kind of thing, it's like, I can remember being told things like that and not really getting it like it just some of it is like it's not overt and you realize you know years later that the way you thought about these things was actually really screwed up
0: very screwed up what do you think like especially interviewing you know you had that year of kind of getting to know those three 13 year old girls and what it's like to be 13 now like are there things that you think about that they're going to look back on this time and be like, wow, I can't believe that that's what we were being fed from society or and like and then also counter to that. What do you think are some really positive things that hopefully they are taking in, you know, because we there were a lot of wonderful like I, I do remember specifically like, you know, being young and the spice girls and girl power and like watching female sports in a different way, you know, like there were a lot of like big, impactful, wonderful things that I look back on where it just, I felt like that were very, that were positive towards like my development as like a young woman and an adult woman now. But
3: Yeah, well, side note, Spice Girls, that's another one we should do. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you're watching the Beckham documentary. but I haven't watched it yet. I didn't realize, I mean, I loved the Spice Girls, but I didn't realize that Posh, Victoria, was basically blamed for the loss of the World Cup, for Beckham losing the penalty shot, and like, because they thought that he was distracted by his then-girlfriend, soon-to-be-wife. So anyway, another rabbit hole to go down. But yeah, in terms of The teen girls today, I mean, look, I think they're so much more educated about issues of feminism and equality and intersectionality and racial justice than I was at their age. So in a lot of ways, they're really advanced and smart. But I also think they suffer from too much information, you know, like the amount, the sheer amount of things being thrown at them at all time, whether it's like notifications on their phones or I didn't realize that if you're a teenager today and you go to school, the way that you're finding out about like quiz grades is through pop-up notifications Mm. on your cell phone. Like that to me is so stressful. (laughs) and I don't know how they're managing that, but also just the news, like the amount of information is just so overwhelming, even for me as an adult. And so to think about a teenager who may not have the media literacy to be able to sift through and be like, oh, this is Factual information. This is fake. Like this is sending a bad message. This is not a real person can be concerning. And so that was part of what this piece was trying to get into was, you know, how do you it's not as simple as just banning your kids from having phones, but like, how do you engage in having healthy conversations around it? And so I think for these girls, you know, some of the issues are the same. It's like puberty. It's finding out who you are. It's like, who are your friends? Who do you trust? Where do you fit into the social hierarchy? But you're doing it against this audience or this threat of an audience at all times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean
3: yeah. luckily we're grown women <laughs> yeah, so totally. hopefully we have the yeah. <laughs>
0: psychology to manage it though
3: not always
0: <laughs> oh man well Jessica I could talk to you forever and ever I'm gonna let you go but I have five last questions a little conversation cool down before I, I say goodbye it's kind of just the first thing that pops into your mind I you can keep it simple one word more than one word but what is something that you like seltzer
3: drinking one right now. I don't know.
0: Are you like a flavored seltzer?
3: I'm a clear, no flavor okay. seltzer. All right. Yeah. Something that you know. But I'm like, a, I'm a, I really care about the bubble frequency. Okay. And strength. Do you do you do it yourself with the thing? No, I don't. Okay.
0: I should. No, I know. I, I, I should do it, eventually I'm like, one day I'll get one of those. Yeah. I don't know not. why. Like, Putting the flavor in it freaks me out. Like, I know it's flavored, uh, but me seeing it goes yeah. like, oh, it's not natural, but this in yeah. a can that I don't see how yeah. it's put
3: together. It just feels weird. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, something that you know. Something that I know. I think I know myself and, and I think it took me many years to be able to say that, but I, I really feel like I do trust my gut in a way that I didn't always. Something that you hate. I hate social media
0: posturing. That's a great answer. Something that you love that is not your partner, family, pets, but something that you love that brings you joy.
3: I love learning new things. And and that's why I love being a journalist so much, because I get to delve into these weird subjects and like go really deep into them.
0: What's like the, what is the most, re- even if you're not writing about it, what is like the latest little rabbit hole that you've gone down?
3: I'm currently going down a rabbit hole for the podcast about a golden girls joke in which they called lesbians Lebanese and how that has become an enduring like wink in the gay community for when you don't want to say the word lesbian out loud. And so you call somebody Lebanese. Turns out there's like this long history of it.
0: I did not. I will also be going down that rabbit hole that I can't wait for this episode. And then finally, Jessica, what is a quirky little fact
3: about you? Let's see. I'm my husband would say I'm like really neurotic and we have a lot of plants in our apartment and I love having plants but if he drips water on the floor when he waters them I have mm-hmm. like a meltdown so I don't like water on the floor apparently <laughs> 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 Do you do you have like a good try
0: like do you take care you nurture your plants you keep them alive He's in charge of the plants and he's gotcha. very good at it okay very nurturing
3: funny except for the drips, the you know
0: what I'm saying? I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Water and wood do not go well together.
3: Uh, you I have white floors it like stands. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's fair. <laughs> that is fair. Well, thank you so, so much. I truly appreciate your time and I'm so excited for all your upcoming episodes. A Super Bloom Podcast is hosted by me, Candice King, produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions. Edited by Diane Kang. Post-production sound by Coco Lawrence. And advertising partnership with Acast.